volvieron. Los McNugget Buddies are back at McDonald's. Y ahora tienen un nuevo look, diseñado por el streetwear designer Kerwin Frost. Cada buddy tiene su propio vibe, pero cuando el squad está completo, se ven fire. Complete your buddy squad ordenando the Kerwin Frost Box. Cada caja incluye un buddy, tu elección de una Big Mac o unos Timpy's Chicken McNuggets, papitas medianas y un refresco mediano. Disponible desde el 11 de diciembre. Para pa pa pa. En McDonald's participantes por tiempo limitado hasta agotar existencias. Whether you're buying a new car, a used car, or refinancing your current car, FedChoice Federal Credit Union could help save you money. FedChoice makes buying a car so easy that you can do everything right from your smartphone or on a computer. Become a member today and you can take advantage of their great rates and financing options. Find out more at FedChoice.org. That's FedChoice.org. Membership open to federal employees including contractors and their families. FedChoice Federal Credit Union insured by NCUA. From the studios of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C., you are on the Hill. Tom Fitzgerald here with you this time, and we appreciate you, uh, as always, uh, downloading this podcast and uh, joining us each week as you do. Paul Rosenzweig is a senior national security fellow at the R Street Institute here in Washington, D.C. He is a former Homeland Security first deputy assistant secretary, and he is an expert in uh, foreign policy and uh, homeland security issues uh, in and around the wide world. And Paul, we thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Paul, as we sit here uh, this time, uh, we are just coming off the heels of President Trump firing John Bolton. Um Bolton was somebody who, you know, had kind of made the rounds on television networks for a while early in the Trump presidency as an advocate for a lot of the things uh, that the president espoused. He was brought into the administration after H.R. McMaster, the second uh, national security advisor, uh, uh, departed. What went wrong? What, What was the conflict between these two? I think it was a fundamental disconnect in their in their worldviews, notwithstanding the fact that Bolton auditioned for the job. Uh, uh, the president, I think, bought him o- mostly because of his combative nature, which appealed to the president, without recognizing that that combative nature would translate into a combative approach to the world, and uh, one that, uh, in the end, the president wasn't going to accept. Uh, with You think of the things that Bolton favored that the president didn't. He wanted to be tougher against North Korea. The uh, president is seeking desperately a rapprochement with him. He wanted to be tougher with the Taliban in Afghanistan. The president desperately wants to do a deal to get out of there. He wanted to be tougher with Iran, even than the president is. And the president is apparently recognizing that he needs to be uh, less tough with them uh, as well. He wanted to try and oust Maduro from Venezuela, Bolton did. President Trump said, go ahead and do it, and didn't manage to get it done, so that's a failure, a black mark on Trump's um, uh, foreign policy legacy. Uh, Bolton is an advocate for uh, NATO. The president thinks that NATO is uh, is a, an obsolete relic of the past and, and that the, the Europeans have been free-riding off of America. So time and again, when you get down to the nitty-gritty of the detail as opposed to the atmospherics... Um, Bolton and the president, not on the same page. Explain to folks what the job is, because we have a secretary of state. We have a director of national intelligence. We have a Gina Haspel, the CIA director. What is what is the national security advisor to the president do? Well, he he typically has two jobs. Right, The first job is to manage a process within an, any administration in which people with different viewpoints are 
you know, brought to the table to discuss them. You know, how to approach Iran is not something that has a single answer. Mm -hmm. So you have to bring a Department of State, a mm -hmm. Department of Defense, uh, a, a CIA, and the and the Director of National Intelligence, all who all whom have different information, different perspectives, different capabilities. So that in the traditional uh, sense of a national security advisor, the advisor is responsible for presenting the president with say four possible options of what he could do mm -hmm. that are some of which are supported more or less by each members of his own cabinet. Uh, the advisor is also, however, uh, the a direct personal advisor to the president, not just a manager of process, but an input of his own. And stronger national security advisors have leaned more heavily into telling the president what they think and structuring the process so that their answer mm. is the one that is presented as the most favorable to the president. So on the food chain from the outside, it would look like the cabinet officers are you know, higher up on the food chain. But in the reality of the workings of how this goes, uh, National Security Advisor is a pretty loud voice in that room. He is often the loudest voice, depending upon his or her personality mm -hmm. and his or her instincts and inclinations. They can be the only voice, the controlling voice, if you will. Uh, or if they're more, you know, humble, uh, uh, mm -hmm. they can actually serve as a neutral arbiter, uh, presenter of ideas, reserve their own interventions for, for rare moments. We've had National security advisors of both types in the past, mm H.R. -hmm. McMaster, for example, was very much of the process-oriented, I'm going to give you all the information, Mr. President, and maybe guide you away from the ones that are really, really bad or mm -hmm. illegal, uh, whereas Bolton, by contrast, was clearly of the first type, the stronger, the I'm going to take the control of this process, own it, mm -hmm. and drive it to the solutions I think are right. Mm -hmm. Now, we are on our third... Uh, National Security Advisor in this administration. First, there was Michael Flynn. He lasted only a couple of weeks uh, because he had apparently lied to the vice president about his contacts with Russia. There was H.R. McMaster, who was an army general, who stayed in the job for quite some time, but ultimately his differences of the administration uh, caught up with that relationship, and, and that ended setting the stage for John Bolton to come in, and now John Bolton has left. So when, when you look at these three tenures, and it's really kind of hard to make any conclusions about Flynn's time there because it was so short. Um, what What is this White House looking for in a national security advisor? Well, I think what's become clear now is that President Trump is looking for a national security advisor who supports his own, uh, Trump's own vision of the world. However mercurial or, or uh, out of bounds we think that might be, he wants somebody who will take his decisions and implement them. So not somebody to present him options, not somebody to tell him what to do, but somebody who will salute, say yes, sir, and go and do it. Well, let me stop you there for a moment, because when people say that thing about Donald Trump and his presidency, it does tend to take on a, a different connotation that that is somehow... Um, you know, not what he should be doing. Don't all presidents want that? Don't all presidents want their people to implement their policies and their positions? Yes and no, yeah. right? I mean, you know, uh, what they want or what most of the others seem to want is a process where there is a uh, robust factual basis and discussion for their decisions. And then once they've reached the end of the process, 
they want everybody to implement what they've said. So if after six months of discussion, you say, well, we're not going to bomb Iran, we're going to do a, an agreement with them as, as Obama did, mm-hmm. you know, then Obama naturally wants people to say, yes, sir, we'll follow your direction. The difference between Trump and other presidents seems to be that he really short circuits that that pre-decisional process and and it has the appearance of making his decisions more on instinct, gut feel, and um, often preconceptions about the world that are maybe not at uh, maybe are at odds with some of the reality of it. Now, there's a lot of reporting right now that Mike Pompeo may be in line to be named to the position kind of in a dual role as Secretary of State and uh, National Security Advisor. You pointed out um, that it's not the first time that's ever happened. Henry Kissinger at one point held both jobs. I believe he was, was he National Security Advisor first and then became Secretary of State or? You know, I don't remember. So (laughs) I think think Rogers was. I think Rogers was the Secretary of State and he took that job when he was National Security Advisor. So so he would reverse it. That's right. uh, So, you know, that was decades ago. Uh, obviously, the the world has gotten a lot more complicated. Is this something that a Secretary of State in 2019, 2020 could do, should do? Um, or does it remove maybe a voice that is I- important to debate when it comes to forming for foreign policy? Well, yeah, Henry Kissinger was an extremely able man. Say whatever you want about him. Mm-hmm. Uh, extremely strong and uh, and extremely uh, capable. Uh, one has the sense that only someone of that kind of grand stature could really sit in both jobs successfully and do both jobs very well. Uh, the interesting aspect of this is that the traditional argument against it is that the cabinet officer who also serves as national security advisor would see his institution advanced over others, that if a secretary of state were also national security advisor, diplomacy would take a front seat and military or intelligence or homeland security or Department of Justice concerns would go come in second place. Uh, one maybe doesn't have that sense about Pompeo. One has more of a sense that if he were to ascend to the uh, National Security Advisor uh, piece, it would really be a, a complete uh, decision that Trump's own personal processes would would manage all of this and that he would be responsible for implementing that back to his own department as well as all the others. Well, especially, you know, the portfolio he's amassed for himself in this administration extends beyond Secretary of State. He had served at, at the CIA. Exactly. So it's kind of like uh, like uh, Mulvaney, you know, they, as, as chief of staff or acting chief of staff, Mulvaney essentially is now just a channel for Trump's instincts and no longer acting as a is a check on any of them, as some of the prior chiefs of staff seem to have. I think that if Pompeo became national security advisor, he very much would be that in that same mold. Uh, you're, you're a foreign policy person, you're a homeland security person, uh, but I, am, I imagine as you've been watching as a spectator on our, our political campaign that is underway right now, um, you know, uh, attention needs to be paid uh, to the people who, who may ascend to the White House. If they're successful, uh, as you as you've heard, these candidates on the Democratic side, um, there does seem to be a significant lack of conversation about foreign policy and homeland security. Do, do you 
notice that as well? And what do you take from that? A- absolutely. And, and I'm actually working on a project with some folks up at Fordham about trying to bring more foreign policy discussion into the Democrat side of the debate. Um, just because it, I, I don't even care about the answers. I care more <laughs> that people ask the questions. It doesn't uh, even seem to be not, yeah, brought but, up. But yeah. the truth of the matter is, is that's pretty typical of, 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 of politics, presidential politics. Foreign policy mm-hmm. is only rarely... A, a, an issue. A, Americans tend to vote based on taxes, health care, education, mm-hmm. all the traditional pocketbook things that we do, I, uh, I, most of which are well outside my own wheelhouse except as a citizen. Right, right. Uh, and But I would like to hear a little bit more from the Democratic candidates, particularly since some of them have a little bit of this isolationist vibe going on in their Um, in some of the few things that they've said. Joe Biden gave a a good long speech on foreign policy. uh, Must have been a month, month and a half ago. That was pretty well received and I thought pretty sensible. I would like to see each of the candidates do one of those at least. Well, Biden is the one that seems like that's the most in his wheelhouse, having been, you know, obviously in the Senate for 37 37 years. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Many years. Yeah. People do not seem to focus on these things as much in presidential candidate campaigns until they do. But often it is a fact as well sometimes that these candidates will say things. Uh, I think back to George W. Bush in 2000 saying how he was not going to be into nation building. And, you know, before we knew it, we were entangled in the affairs of Afghanistan to this day, um, trying to get that country stable to the point where it's not a you know, a, a safe haven f- for terrorists. So some sometimes there there's a disconnect on what they say, too, because they're just not in the job. Well, it's both they're not in the job and events happen. There was a prime minister of, of the U.K. many years ago who said, you know, who was asked what happened to your plans? And he said, you know, the world happened. Yeah, the world Life happened. happened. Yeah. Uh, right? I am sure that President Bush meant it when he said we weren't going to do nation building. And then 9-11 happened. And that makes it. Uh, not essential, but uh, important enough. Likewise, you know, uh, well, for pretty much every president, the the foreign sphere has a way of intruding uh, I- that that they can't necessarily anticipate because there are 190 odd other nations who who do that. You know, we just passed the uh, 18th anniversary of the 9/11 attacks, um, and it's important to note that we have largely gone. Um, I think the bicycle attack in New York City on the bike path was the last time we had an Islamic extremist execute successfully an attack here in the United States. Um, but we have 18 years of, uh, of, of this fight against terrorism here in the, in the homeland. Um, that's not by accident. That's by a lot of hard work um, by a lot of institutions like Homeland Security, like FBI, like CIA. Um, I'm an Al-Zawahiri who is the current leader, uh, the aging current leader of Al-Qaeda, did put out another message last week uh, calling for lone wolf attacks. Um, but we don't know how loudly that was received. And we got confirmation this week that the son of Osama bin Laden had been killed. Um, so, so where are we right now? Are, are we far enough away from 9-11-2001 to say that we have successfully defeated these elements of al-Qaeda and perhaps ISIS, or is this still a, a, a day-to-day fight in the trenches and maybe behind the scenes that a lot of people just don't know about? 
Well, there are, in terrorist acts, there are no permanent victories. Mm -hmm. But I would, I would say that um, the security posture of the United States as against terrorist activities, foreign terrorist activities, is um, substantially improved mm -hmm. uh, today over 18 years ago. And uh, I wouldn't call it a victory, but I would characterize it as having reached a steady state, um, perhaps even a place where we can uh, lighten up a bit on some of the security measures, which isn't, doesn't seem to be the instinct of a lot of actors today who want to keep driving more. But um, you know, for me at least, the victory will be when some of the security measures shut down. I, I, don't, I don't know that that's terribly yeah. shared around the country, but that's my goal. Well, you know, you you raise an interesting point because I had heard some discussion, you know, during the anniversary the other day of some people saying, well, it would be nice to go back to September 10th, 2001, which, you know, not only denies reality, but I, I don't know if that's possible anymore. Is there some version in our future that you see that we return to some kind of posture, you know, before the 9-11 attacks? And would that even be smart? I don't think we would go all the way back because that posture was completely ignorant of the threat, and uh, and we'll never be that ignorant. Both again. domestically and internationally, because Both we allowed yeah. Al Qaeda to, to, to have grow, a safe haven. Yeah, yeah, safe haven in Afghanistan. We we didn't have any real airport security to speak of. I mean, we had yeah. some, but you know, it was mostly focused not, on a completely different threat yeah. set. Yeah. Um, so we'll never want to go back to that, uh, mm -hmm. nor should we. Um, and the threats will continue to mutate, and we need to kind of mutate with them. Uh, an example of that would be the drone attack in uh, mm -hmm. in Saudi Arabia just right. this week, which is brand new and yeah. far more significant than people flying on airplanes with us. But what I do think that we can ask for and expect is um, for our security measures to be subject to a little bit more rigorous analysis. Mm -hmm. Is this one really necessary? Uh, is the cost of it, you know, too great and, and the benefit non-existent? You can think of some measures that we've put in place that really just seem um, excessive. I would think that most of what we're going to have to do, though, is to be nimble and, and get ahead of the next threat. One of the things that was said to have played into the uh, decision to uh, fire John Bolton in the White House was a disagreement over negotiations with the Taliban and the Afghanistan war, whether or not they were going to have the Taliban leadership and Afghanistan leaders come to Camp David in Thurmont, Maryland, near there. Um, but it, it does raise the, 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 the question that we're probably never going to see, you know, a, a surrender signing like we saw at the battleship Missouri at the end of World War II. But what would an end to the Iraq war look like? Joe Biden made the point in the debate the other night that this isn't one country we're talking about. It's different you know, regions that have been stitched together in, in, into a country? Well, I think the end of it, from the best end for an American perspective, would be a reasonably stable country that isn't a safe haven for terrorist activity. You know, if they want to go to heck in a handbasket on their own, that's fine. Even if they're like a source of opium, which is a, a major problem with Afghanistan, you know, that's something that we can deal with in other ways than by fighting a war. We can deal with it diplomatically. We can deal with it through law enforcement means, uh, through intelligence means, lots of things other than having our troops there. Uh, the reason we went there was because it was an al-Qaeda safe haven. Um, and that, if we can get an agreement that that is not 
going to recur and enforce that agreement mm -hmm. uh, in, a, in, a, in a realistic way, then, then that would be a successful conclusion. Do you think that that's an obtainable goal? Mm, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> maybe. Because uh, I've heard Taliban leaders say just very recently in interviews that they still don't believe al-Qaeda was responsible for 9-11. Yeah, yeah. 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 and, and, and as soon as Al-Qaeda itself, yeah. from the days it, after the attack. As soon as, I, I mean, yeah. As soon as we're gone, it seems likely that any agreement will be violated with impunity. And if that's really the case, then we'll, we'll have uh, wasted a lot of American blood and treasure. So we feasibly have a situation right now where an 18-year-old who is enrolled in the United States military, you know, could be still embroiled in a conflict that started before they were born. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I, when I teach at school, I, I'm starting to teach a generation that doesn't really have a clear memory of, of 9-11. That's sobering. Yeah. Sobering. Paul Rosenweig is a senior national security fellow at the R Street Institute. He's a former Homeland Security official, a first deputy assistant secretary. That's a pretty good title. <laughs> and uh, he was kind enough to join us. Uh, here on the On the Hill podcast. Paul, we thank you so much. Thanks for having me. All right, me. we thank you for always uh, downloading this podcast and spending some time with us. I'm Tom Fitzgerald. We'll see you next time from the studios of Fox 5 here in Washington, D.C. We'll talk to you soon. Ven a JCPenney y termina tus compras navideñas con brillantes descuentos como hasta 70% en joyería después del cupón. Además tenemos velas, mantas suavecitas y más desde $7.99 y miles de doorbusters en marcas como Adidas, Champion, Disney y Carters. Recoge tu pedido el mismo día. Es rápido y gratis. Estará listo en dos horas o menos hasta las 3 p.m. Nochebuena. JCPenney, celebraciones que valen la pena. Ofertas válidas hasta el 24 de diciembre en selección de estilos. Aplican exclusiones. Doorbusters excluyen de los cupones. Detalles en la tienda jcp.com.